Welcome to the Death Studies podcast, a podcast dedicated to the breadth and diversity of voices in and around the academic field of death studies. With your hosts, Dr. Renske Visser and Dr. Bethan Michael Fox. Let's get started. Good morning, Beth. Good morning, Renske. How the tables have turned, Beth, because I've been watching the news over at the UK because we are recording this on the 20th of July, 2022, and there is an insane heat wave going on. So are you melting? Are you surviving? What's happening? I'd say I'm surviving, but also (laughs) I am not thriving. This is not my weather. My body is like, I I actually said to... um, And I should ask Anna about this because I actually said to one of my sisters, I'm going to move to Iceland because clearly I need a colder climate. And she was like, you need to look that up because I think it's actually quite hot there in the summer. So maybe I'm wrong about what countries are cold and hot. The name made me think it would be cold. The name is very misleading. I read a bit about Iceland in one of the many books I read, which was talking about the death of the gletchers on Iceland and that there's a memorial plaque for a a gletcher that used to be but climate changed like now over 40s in the UK that like over a hundred gletchers have disappeared in Iceland so Iceland is boiling as well. I'm gonna get it up and read it because it's so lovely it's a I can't pronounce it properly but Okjokul O-K-J-O-K-U-L-L is what they named the glacier and it says on the plaque the English translation says a letter to the future. Ok or OK, is the first Icelandic glacier to lose its status as a glacier. In the next 200 years, all our glaciers are expected to follow the same path. This monument is to acknowledge that we know what is happening and what needs to be done. Only you know if we did it. August 2019. That just gives me goosebumps. I I was saying gletcher, which is the Dutch word for glacier, but I think it's also used internationally. I think Latch is probably nicer, probably better. I never know what's right. It's not a word I use that often. <laughs> it just glitcher sounds like someone sliding on ice, which is neither here nor there. But also it makes me a bit worried that in September, when I'll come to the UK again for death and culture, like will your will your country have calmed down temperature wise? Because politically we don't we won't even go there. But like I hope it will be a nice September breeze when we'll meet in York. I imagine it will be raining, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. No, I think it will definitely cool down. Where, to be fair, it's not too bad in Cornwall. It has been hot, but we've got the sort of sea breeze and stuff. I mean, I'm a bit inland, inland but there's there's more sea breeze. And it has made me realise we sometimes, I sort of browse jobs, what we call up country, back where I used to work. And now I think, I actually don't think I could do it because because I couldn't cope with that heat again. I mean, looking at the temperatures in London and things, I do feel for people. It's it's really, really tough. It terrifies me. But I'm I'm hoping that by September it will indeed be sweater weather or jumper weather, as you say in your country. And we are going to put it out there once more that if you are also in death and culture in York and you want to get one of our sweaters and you want to make sure that your size is available, please send us an email at the Death Studies Podcast at gmail.com and let us know whether you would like a small, medium or large or perhaps even a different size if you want to go extra small, extra large. That's also possible. And whether you would like it in grey or black because um, I we ha- would hate for people to show up at the conference dying to buy some merch and that 
it would be sold out. So let us know your preferred size and color if you want to pick up one of our snazzy sweaters. And we've had some other nice news in the last week as well. We've had some participants in the podcast, some guests from the podcast getting in touch to say that they've been invited to give talks or to get involved in networks or just to give advice to people or to talk about their specific research interests as a consequence of being on the pod. So we're really thrilled with that. And yeah, it's making us feel like it's it's really wonderful just to, to give a platform to wonderful, exciting and, and interesting scholars from different places. And, and today, I think we can add you know, something even more exciting to that, we've got a humanities scholar and we've got someone else from the deep down under, like uh, Deb Rawlings, who we've had on previously talking about death doulas. So today we have Dr. Sarah Knox, Associate Professor in the Writing and Society Research Group and the School of Humanities and Languages at the University of Western Sydney. She is the author of Murder, A Tale of Modern American Life and other notable works on violence and representation. Her most recent publications include work on Hilary Mantel, including a study of the moral geography of violence in Mantel's novels, and the regeneration of the historical novel as a literary genre. Her novel, The Orphan Gunner, that's right, she's written her own novel, won the 2009 Asher Literary Prize and was shortlisted for the Commonwealth Writers' Prize and the Age Book of the Year. We are absolutely delighted to have Sarah on the podcast and we really hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks so much for joining us for the podcast today. Your research is predominantly focused in English literature, cultural studies and more broadly in the humanities. And you've also written an award winning novel, which we're very interested in. So can you please just tell us a bit about your research interest and where death studies fits into all of this? Well, I suppose if we turn it around on its head and go, how does it all fit into death studies? The one overarching interest that I've had across all of the various things that I have taken as an object of interest, and that's a very wide range of things, is the ways in which, in the most broad sense, stories make cultural meaning and frame experience, but specifically in respect to problems and patterns in the representation and the mediation and the storying of killing and dying and the afterlife. And of course, as with all things to do to the afterlife, with the afterlife, we'll move on to that <laughs> at a later stage. So what I've been doing throughout a very long period of scholarship is looking at the loud stories that shape um, the experience of death and dying. And I've looked to all kinds of sources for that too. So that includes my study of certain works of literature for the ways in which they may, for instance, envision or evoke a, a crime or uh, characterise a murderer and criminal responsibility or to make the fragility of ordinary natural death appear. So... I kind of started out when I was, well, very young, doing my master's at Victoria University of Wellington. And I thought to myself, as do we all, Lord in heaven, find me a topic that will sustain my interest for all time. And I thought, well, what is the thing that has sustained all human interest for all time? Death? 
And then I thought, no, let's get even more intense than that. Let's have death with a little bit of awful suffering and misery and authoritarian or state violence thrown into it. The first thing that I did was um, with my master's was I looked at the kind of Cold War discourse around the execution of the Rosenbergs and the ways in which, particularly as one does, focusing on the plight of Ethel Rosenberg and looking at the way in which how she was um, styled in the press as this kind of mother, this kind of wife, this kind of female communist, how all of that was as responsible for her death as any other aspect of her involvement in the crime of atomic spying. So that got me into all kinds of different kinds of um, interests in discourse as, as shaping the public, but also the legal understandings of a particular crime or person accused of a crime or criminal event. And then I drifted from there. I thought, okay, that was interesting. That was a tonic spies. That was like execution. Oh, that was so sad. Oh, oh, it was so interesting, but not interesting enough. I thought, what could be more interesting and sustaining and death related? I thought, well, I know, murder. Who isn't interested in murder? thinks I to myself. And by goodness me, I was completely right about that because it did sustain my interest. The topic of murder, or rather more, what it was that I was doing in that first unwieldy doctoral dissertation that then became my book with Duke, was I was looking at, again, the kinds of stories that are told about murder and where those stories get told. So... Mm, that would be in you know, popular fiction and literature, but also in the courtroom and in the news media and in written statements from murderers themselves and in a whole set of different places, but all of them kind of attaching to the same kinds of really powerful stories that then would shape what the story of the crime and the criminal and indeed the meaning of the death was. So I just kind of carried that on through and thought, murder, 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 I'll keep going with murder. Until, of course, one day I stopped and I moved on to other kinds of death-related experience. But still with a preoccupation on discourse and the shaping power of discourse to foreground certain kinds of experience or to evacuate and hide other kinds of experience. And this is very exciting for me because I really, really enjoy your work. And I love the way you phrased it, like how stories make meaning and how we think about stories in relation to death and dying. This is right up my street. But I'm at the moment deep into this podcast called My Favourite Murder. <laughs> so oh. I'm, I'm thinking I, I'm going to apply some ideas from your, your book to it. <laughs> but if we move on to my next question, it's, it's of course related, is that you've written quite a lot about school shootings and the representation of violence. You've written about the serial killer and popular culture, and you've written about popular cultural representations of murderers in your book and, and more, as you've said. I'm keen to know why you think it's important to research the representation of violence and death and culture. I mean, you don't need to convince me, but I'm, I'm interested in what your views on this are. Well, I, I just remember, it's a very long time ago, but during the trial of O.J. Simpson, there was this one moment that really stuck with me when... He was coached, obviously, by his lawyer, Johnny Cochran, uh, when he himself was on the stand, OJ. And 
there was this moment when the prosecution presented what should have been the most important bit of material evidence that would that would prove his guilt. And that was this bloody glove that had was covered with the blood of Nicole Simpson. It was very soft calf of leather and it fit his hand perfectly. And they made him put it on. You know, this was the perfect theater of material evidence in a courtroom. But what he did was he just kept saying, it's not my glove. It's not my glove. It's not my glove. Because of the power of a whole set of different kinds of stories that had already been built up about OJ and being a kind of an outsider, African-American, various other things. But it was that just that denial of what was fact. And one of the things that I've looked at with those really powerful overriding stories, particularly the way they operate in a courtroom, stories of a crime or stories of the genesis of a person's criminality or what actually happened at the moment of a death is that so much effect can go by the way. And this was like, you know, now we, we're very, well, here I am doing the we where we're speaking for everybody. We, you know, we're so preoccupied with a world that just blinks at fact and is full of misinformation and people cleaving to particular kinds of beliefs. But, you know, in the face of perfectly established contrary evidence and studying death and violence, and particularly the representation of crime as an event, the murderer as an agent, has been incredibly important, I think, for trying to tease out the difference between what makes a good story of those things and what actually is the facts of the matter and the facts are these little evanescent things that just disappear so that's noticeable with all and basically i concentrated on particular categories of killers and particularly those that got a lot of media attention so serial killers teen killers uh woman killers and all of these, I have to say, are of course incredibly rare. They're not representative of murder as a business generally. So I looked to where the greatest noise was happening and then I tried to unpick it. And I think it's really important for scholars working in what you might call critical legal studies or, or cultural criminology, or I wasn't really in those disciplines, but working along the edges of those disciplines to try to unpick commonsensical understandings of what actually is going on. What is the overarching story of a person's dying at the hands of another? Having said that, I tried to avoid doing serial killers for a long time, or I could phrase it as, I tried to avoid serial killers for a long time, as you would, because who wants to be doing serial killers? Because everybody was doing it. I thought, oh, Lord. But then I just could not ignore those tired old tropes that kept on turning up on my television screen that made me think that Scandinavian countries were, of course, a hotbed of serial killing. And indeed, they are not, in fact, quite the opposite. <laughs> so I did eventually do serial killing in so many ways. But uh, I think it was actually the case of Henry Lee Lucas that really drew me into that because he was 
less a serial killer than a serial confessor, and he was like the king. He understood the importance of the story. Absolutely. So when he told about serial killing, he basically would do this whole compendium of horrors of ways of killing people and disposing of bodies and throwing of heads out of car windows and 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 which kinds of knives he used and which ones he liked and what he did with the bodies and and how many people he'd killed and it was 340 and then it was 350 and then it was 670. He was just completely baroque. He was out of control. But his confessions were not just believed, they were deeply encouraged by the Texas Rangers and by the district attorney and by visiting police officers from different places. And and he became known as, you know, the world's worst serial killer. But in point of fact, when you scrape back everything and you get back to the little spine of fact, you see this kind of desperate man who does end up killing some people, but probably only three, one of whom was his mother, whom he stabbed just with a very small knife, I might add, whilst watching television. An incredibly banal domestic killing. The, the kind of Baroque narratives of what makes a serial killer that were completely, totally, so far away from the facts of the matter that really got me into the whole thing of wanting to write about serial killing. And that brings us quite nicely to another question that we have for you, which is about your book, Murder, A Tale of Modern American Life. Yes. And you examine the sort of idea that murder claims such a powerful hold on American imagination. And why do you think it is that, that there is such a fascination with an obsession with murder? I mean, you can't count the amount of Netflix series coming out now that are looking at, you know, making a murderer or, or OJ. Things, you know, that it obviously fascinates people and, and me included. Yeah. Well, and of course me. I've got to put my hand up about that and say it's fascinating. But in that book, what I was really looking at, I think, was in a very simple way, the mystery of murder, but the mystery of murder in terms of what it is that the cultural stories, media stories, stories told at trial, stories told by murderers themselves, what it is that they all try to do when they're making sense of the act of murder. And the attraction of it is, is that death in the act of murder when it's narrated appears not just as an event, which is in itself a deeply interesting thing, where a life has ended and ended by violence, but also death has an agency. It has an agent, it has a face in that moment, which is the murderer. So what I was trying to look at was the ways in which certain stories handled not just, you know, the telling of the story of the crime, but the telling of the, the origin story, if we go back to the great thing about superheroes, how did they get their powers? Well, with murderers, it's <gasps> murderers. How did they suddenly become the murderer when they were the boy next door or they were that guy who lived down the road who, who used to disappear animals or whatever it was? So there's this kind of strange epistemological stature to certain kinds of murders and that's a different claim to saying that murder is itself a deeply mysterious thing and what that book was looking at is how is it that the 
origins of the killing are told to constrict the murderer as a distinct being from the person before the murder. I just, I'm desperate to ask you, is it this bad mother's narrative comes in a lot, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. And I mean, the, the key case studies that I did, which I was doing my research in the office of the district attorney in Mineola in New York, which was in itself a deeply exciting event because there's poor little old me coming from Australia and like nobody can understand my accent. And every time I go into a bar and I say, can you give me a Bix? They go, you want a Bix? I say, no, no, give me a Bix. And then eventually I would have to say, oh, give me a cause or <laughs> something else. Nobody could understand me. But when I walked into that district attorney's office to do my research and I met those homicide detectives, all I had to say was that I was doing murder and immediately they could understand every word that came out of my mouth. It was an amazing transformation. But um, the case that I was there studying was the case of Martha Beck and Ray Fernandez, the so-called honeymoon killers, who have been the subject of numerous true crime, very popular true crime studies, and also film. I think there's no less than four films, five maybe, made about their misadventures with him he wooed elderly widows and then well this is to kind of digest the story in the most popular way and then killed them while Martha Beck was posing as his sister when in fact she was his lover and all of that and I was having a look into them and I discovered very soon that you know there was this whole way in which these two people were styled as why it is that they'd done the killings that they'd done. And it was about her being overweight and unloved and overbearing and a bad mother because she'd left her daughter back in Pensacola, Florida. And he was A-bald, wore a toupee, was small, was not white, and was weak and deferred to Martha at every point. And those two portraits of these two people, which was not really anything to do with what they were like, shaped the way the trial went down. But uh, I never got to do all my research there because I was, um, my period of research coincided with the mass killings perpetrated on the Long Island Railroad by Colin Ferguson. In fact, I was in a train going in the other direction when they were laying out the bodies on on the station. And because the cops handling it and the district attorney handling it was the place where I was doing the research I just couldn't go back so there was this weird aporia at the heart of my study that was actually all about the the interruptions in ordinary in this case scholarly life of um, murder wow which is just a less than fun fact that's that's amazing (laughs) I mean it's it's not easy stuff to research is it it's not it's not go to bed feeling cozy and safe at night stuff to research how do you sort of feel about that well, I mean, I mean, with death studies generally, as Erica's uh, Erica Borstrom has pointed out, you know, I mean, it's 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 a tender area to work in in so many different ways. I mean, you have to be tender to the to the subject, and you know, to to where it is and from whom you get your data. And in the case of dealing with the dead, you have to be tender to the dead. But I discovered too that, of course. The closeness of my work in unteasing these particular narratives that structured an understanding of who the murderer was and why they did it made me 
feel pity for the killers in a way that becomes ethically problematic. So part of the problem for me was was not just that I was looking at horrible, you know, books of evidence and, you know, elderly women wrapped in Chanel nightgowns and turfed into shallow graves, which was disturbing, but that I thought so hard about the position of the murderers and particularly in respect to the ways in which in the United States the story of murder is bracketed in many cases still, not, not as many as it used to be, by the tale of execution of the murderer. So there's a point at which that whole story of the murder gets told again. And indeed, at that point, the murderer becomes a victim of state violence. So for me, it was really tricky getting so much understanding and so much sympathy of people who had deeply wronged not just the dead, and killing them, but you know everybody who loved those people, and yeah, I mean to this day I still think I have this. I know this may be completely inappropriate for a podcast, but I have a recurring dream where I'm absolutely sure that I've killed someone, but I can't remember who I've killed or when I killed them, <laughs> and I have a feeling that is a scholar's anxiety coming up there. It's a bit weird. <laughs> I'm just wondering, listening to you, because I do research in prison at the moment and how people are diagnosed and treated for cancer. And a lot of the things that you're saying right now really resonate with me in that I've interviewed people in prison about their healthcare and about particularly their illness journeys. But like you, I don't know their origin story, but it's something I, I've been thinking about that people are labeled as a prisoner, but not as the person before they entered prison. So I can see a lot of overlap with, I don't know if I've interviewed murderers, but I always think of what what lead what led you here, and I've since doing that project. I know why I've never ended up in prison because of my origin story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but yes, I suppose. Except then, when you look at things like well, you just read the newspaper and you discover the people who end up killing people without any intention, you know, and they still suffer the, the, all the consequences and the horror. You know, the person who kills someone vehicular homicide or at a crossing or or a single drunken punch in a pub. And even those very, but well, not banal, I wouldn't call them banal, no, no murder's banal, but things that aren't serial killing, tin killing, mass killing, you know, not the, the sort of big names of murder, there's still that watershed moment where everything changes and that person has changed, but they're not changed. They are the person they always were. So, yeah, it's a tricky one, that that idea of the origin story and whether there should even be one, that the person is the person is the person. It's kind of controversial ground to, to work around yeah. sometimes, isn't it? When Renske and I met, one of the first things we sort of realised we had in common was that we both did some work with, with prisons and I do quite a lot of teaching in prisons where, again, like Renske, I'll, I'll never know what the, the crime was because it's not appropriate to ask and, and you know, I'm not informed. But I know from the nature of the prison that it's a prison for sex offenders or it's a prison for a level of crime that would be requisite that there was a certain level of violence or murder involved. And I keep it to myself because I, I think it's really important work and I enjoy it and I try and treat students exactly the same as any other student within the limits, obviously, of, of what I'm allowed to do. But I think I once like mentioned it to someone else and they were 
they were quite horrified really and sort of just thought like we should should we you know should this even and I don't want to get into that kind of debate with people but I think sometimes there's a when you're sort of doing research that's looking at stories and narratives about things the researcher can kind of sometimes become positioned as being complicit with that telling of the sensationalist story which is is not what anyone's trying to do but teasing out that challenge quite hard yeah yeah it's like it's much worse for those poor people who are doing academic studies of pornography who keep getting locked out from their research data by algorithms it's like no you can't go there can't do that no or have the police turn up and actually take their hard drive and then ask you a question about your work on Hilary Mantel and so many people have read Hilary Mantel's historical novels and you've written on the moral geography of violence in popular historical novels by Hilary Mantel so what do you think English literature can can help us to understand about violence and death well I mean literature is a kind of the imagined underside of real life so it like religion it exists to kind of orient us to mortality and also it's able to actually create to show to expose the interiority of character and and thought but also to take long views on whole lives or even successive generations and you can do things with time that make it the perfect vehicle for trying to, as a scholar, you look to that to think through those biggest stories about death and killing. And that's kind of the big baggy gestural answer about, oh, yay, literature, it does everything. <laughs> but for Mantel, that sort of uh, the moral geography of violence and also the ways in which she represents, I suppose, whole different classes of the dispossessed and that her classes of the dispossessed may be the poor or the the mad or the woman in a society where women are not tolerated as in eight months on Gazar Street in her highly realist novels as opposed to her historical novels. There's this way in which she has this incredibly deft understanding of human responsibilities our responsibilities to each other and she pushes that beyond the realm of the responsibilities of the living to the living to the responsibilities of the living to the dead and also in the framework of the responsibilities of the living to the dead where violence is concerned where certain stories have bubbled away in the places of domestic silence or silencing. And she's just particularly good at that. And she also, in her book, Beyond Black, have either of you read Beyond Black? I mean, she's famous for her Tudor novels, obviously, but before that, oh, she did a rousing rendition of the French Revolution, I've got to say, but... <laughs> it's the best thing, the place of greater safety. But her realist novels kind of morphed in Beyond Black to this deeply realist novel. I mean, when you read about all those conurbations and the M5 and the M34 and the little satellite towns and the and it's just, it's kind of hair-raising in its picture of suburbia and suburban life. But what she does with her realist work is that she also works in this kind of world of 
the interpenetration of the dead, the ordinary hauntings of the, you know, the, the ghosts of elderly grandmothers who are more worried about where their button collection is than anything else. Like these incredibly domestic concerns that are so evocative of the fabric of life. So that's that's what I look to in her work is because she's not just a master of the historical novel. She's absolutely, I think, probably most one of the most humanly intelligent people writing in the English language at the moment. So to go to her for anything about death and dying, or indeed anything, excellent. I'm sure we'll both be reading uh, Beyond Black after this. Sounds good. Oh, yeah. Well, or if you like audiobooks, if you listen to it with the, I think it's a Anna Bentink reading, which is probably one of the best audiobook performances I've ever heard in my long existence of listening to audiobooks. Good tip, yeah. So one more question from me before we move on to Renska's questions. And I would like to ask you about what you've recently been very interested in is pet deaths. And one of your most recent publications used Reddit data to examine afterlife beliefs as consolatory grief practice in relation to pet death. Well, with that one, that's, that's again about the kinds of stories that don't bubble up to the surface. In two ways, that area of uh, academic inquiry is very fringe. And it's fringe because firstly, anything that is to do with studying afterlife experience, testimony, is tricky to deal with, of course, and for all the reasons I'm sure you can imagine. But there are really fantastic studies like Gillian Bennett's Alas, Poor Ghost, where she uses the interview data from a whole bunch of Mancusian widows talking about the very banal and domestic um, scenes of visitation they've had with their dead spouses. And what I noticed in Bennett was, as a kind of a glancing bit of data, was that along with the stories of these, these, these widows seeing their dead husbands in various places, in the house, maybe in the garden, was that there was one woman who didn't tell that kind of story at all. She, she told a story about the return of her cat. And I thought that story, the way it was told, it had exactly the same fabric of connection and presence and, in this case, an even more sensory relationship. So I thought, hmm, and I had at that point just lost a cat that I didn't lose it, it didn't run away. It just got died of what could have been five different things in great pain over a very long period of time. And it was a terrible loss and I grieved that cat badly so I thought oh I might look into this and then I looked onto reddit because paranormal r is a is a thread uh, site subsite which deals with explicitly they have to be true experienced stories of encounters with the paranormal usually about hauntings and ghosts though occasionally the old alien does get in there and so I thought, oh, I'll go in there. And of course, there were lots of stories, uh, lots of people talking about their pets returning. And I noticed immediately that the great difference with that is that they were telling these stories of a return, which is comforting, familiar, um, very sensory, usually, you know, something that 
where you can hear the dog in the kitchen lapping at its bowl or you can feel the cat, the weight of the cat on the, the duvet over you. And the returns are very domestic, but they're also utterly consolatory because in a great majority of these cases, the redditor would tell the circumstances of the animals dying. And the circumstances of the animals dying is about the human control of the moment of that death. So they felt guilt. There's the terrible burden of guilt that comes with deciding the time and place and circumstance of a creature that you love that doesn't understand what's happening to it. So the return of those animals was actually like an absolution. And it's that particular structuring of the story that that I found lovely. And it's a great vein for further research, but I haven't got back to it for one reason or another, but I will. No, yes, I will. Partly it's sad as anything. And I spend my whole time crying and then I'm like, oh my God, why am I doing this? <laughs> Well, it's good to dip in and out of some of the research topics, I think, to <laughs> remove yourself sometimes a bit and then return to it. For me, the reason you're here today, or one of the reasons, is I heard you uh, speak for the first time at DDD15, where I've this morning realized you weren't able to see me, but I was able to see and hear you. And you were invited to speak on a panel on death and inequality could you talk a bit about the inequalities you feel are pertinent in deaf studies and how your work includes notions of inequality? Yes, well, my work has always been particularly preoccupied with gender and race and with the unequal or the, the unavoidable loud discourses that crush certain kinds of people when they come up against authority. And I suppose, lately, at the point where I was talking at, at DDU, I was uh, sort of single-mindedly preoccupied with what then, when we were, I think we were like, I can't remember how many weeks into the Sydney outbreak of COVID-19 at that point, but suddenly all the terrible fears about the vulnerabilities of Aboriginal communities uh, started to gain urgency, but not enough urgency. You know, I, I started to feel the urgency and lots of other people did, but it didn't stop what has happened in so many other countries where vulnerable, particularly Indigenous populations, end up being less protected by the risks of infection than other members of the community. So I was like, I was preoccupied with the kind of the necropolitics of COVID, but more generally, I think, as well as that kind of preoccupation with certain kinds of persons uh, and classes of persons who are more likely to fail under the scrutiny of news media or fail in the hands of saving institutions like hospitals or you can't call a prison a saving institution. But along with that, I suppose the inequalities are also discursive inequalities. The inequalities, not just of persons in certain situations, culturally and economically framed, but also of certain stories that don't survive or should survive better than they do. And the complexity of 
what gets heard. So, and that's a more nebulous area, I think, of, of inequality. The inequality of what is, what can be spoken and what is spoken and what is representable and what, what can be represented and what can't. And to give a concrete example of that that's very death-related, is not at all about criminality or anything like that, is a particular area of scholarship, a research project I've been struggling with, is about the ways in which narratives, certain narratives of illness don't function. And in particular, for instance, narratives by survivors of people who have died of motor neuron disease or uh, illness narratives are written by people who are dying of, of motor neuron disease precisely because of the kind of disease it is, a disease that robs agency, capacity, and in certain kinds of forms of the disease itself, speech. So it's kind of antithetical to illness narrative, which belongs in the realm of uh, cancer and diseases where there is the possibility of remission, and indeed that urgency the, the sort of noisy urgency of seeking different kinds of treatments. So that's a weird kind of envisioning of an inequality because it is a disease that does not get spoken. It is a death that isn't spoken, or it's very difficult to represent. But I can't really wrestle it to ground because my mother died of Bulbar's palsy and I still just have to wrestle with the ghost of that which gets in the way of the scholarship, doesn't it? Well, it's all part of the scholarship, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> when I heard you speak at that panel, I'm also interested in aging and who is considered older, an older person. And in prison, typically someone is considered older when they're 50 or over, which is considered younger than often 65 in the general community. But in one paper, I also read that Indigenous Australians' population are considered older when they're 45 in prison, which already made me think, so what is happening there? What is There must be inequalities in healthcare access or in general, there's a lower life expectancy, but in prison it's even f further lowered yes well exactly there is a lower life expectancy and also not only is there a lower life expectancy than the already lowered life expectancy of aboriginal people across australia in australian prisons but they're deeply deeply overrepresented in fact they are the most overrepresented indigenous prison population in the world so it's like and i think that probably does also contribute to the shorter lifespans, the, the, the loss of hope and recognition of value, social value. And then a bit of a jump to a different topic, but you've also been editing special issues for mortality and particularly a special issue on pandemics. So could you tell us a bit about your work for mortality and this upcoming special issue? Well, the upcoming special issue, because of course it's the, it's the issue on pandemics, but when you have a call for paper, for an issue on pandemics and you frame it as widely as possible, but you do it during a pandemic. Inevitably, <laughs> what you end up with is a great preponderance of COVID-related scholarship. And we live in, you know, it's the age of why wouldn't we have a great preponderance of COVID-related scholarship? So the trick with that particular special issue is to get representation of, I mean, how do you get representation of 
the implications for death and dying, for death rituals, for mourning practices, for disposal, for for all of the institutional frameworks of death and dying, medicine, et cetera, et cetera. How do you do that when it's actually a global experience? So representativeness, it will be ultimately the smallest sampling of the smallest sampling, but it's a fascinating process to try to figure out what it is that needs to be said at this moment about something which is such common but also such varied experience in terms of the lethality of the disease. And, of course, we do have a couple of comparative historical studies because without a comparative historical study, what is your issue? <laughs> Empty! It is air! It is nothing! But, uh, yes, so we're still wrestling that to ground at this point. And what are the, some of the challenges about editing special issues and what do you enjoy about them? Um, well, the greatest challenge, and I'm sure Beth knows this very well, is, well, heaven knows, and God bless their cotton socks, the peer reviewers, but there are many peer reviewers who invited and put up their hands to do a thing that do not actually do a thing. <laughs> and so trying to get the critical peer attention to the submissions that they deserve is, is a real challenge unfortunately. And I think that is exacerbated by the by the context of a pandemic because everybody is like, too much and no, and I'm not looking at that email. And <laughs> yeah, it's tricky. Also, I personally find that working with um, editorial teams is itself a little art because you've got to try to negotiate people and who's going to do what. And, and it's like, oh, goodness me, I'm really... Unfortunately, I have to admit, I'm exactly the kind of person, I, I'm I am the man on the white horse. I really would rather do it all myself, even if I esteem my co-editors intensely. And I don't know if you can speak to this already, but you said some things about pandemics have to be said. Is there a threat in the special issue about the things that have to be said about pandemics? Or is that something you're still trying to figure out? Well, I think one of the things is that, particularly in, in terms of ritual practice, that it's not all bad, that there, that there have been productive productive outcomes, historically, culturally speaking, from, from the pressures of pandemics on mourning and disposal practices. So there's that. It's an incredibly productive time of change, and that's not anything new because everything has been thrown up into the air. But also, again, inequality and not just the inequalities of certain people who are made more vulnerable to death and disease structurally and economically and politically, but also the inequalities, well, I don't think, we, the unevenness of experience, that there is just such a range of experience about the impact of, of the pandemic, although, you know, when Omicron, is that how you pronounce it? Who knows? Comes along, it's like, that's all too much. No. And everybody seems to want to have that same reaction. No, 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 no. Also, in the pandemic, a lot of people have, I don't know, baked sourdough bread and started learning languages and thought about writing books. And you have written a novel 
probably pre-pandemic, but could you tell us a bit about how do you go from I want to write a novel or a book to actually writing one? <laughs> that is the age-old question. Well, my answer, and it is only my answer, it's all about the business of working in universities because I was in an incredibly boring committee meeting and I slumped in my chair and then I started doodling on my meeting papers and then lo and behold, it was this incredibly gripping beginning to, <laughs> to a novel. And I thought, Whoa, I'd rather be imaginatively living in that than restructuring our major again. <laughs> so I think it was partly just the desperation of wanting to think about something else at that point. And there were no pandemics going on, so there was no reason why I had to do that. But equally... The story that wanted to be told asserted itself in no uncertain terms. And it was purely in this case, it was it was just to do with thinking about, well, a particular experience of war that was very, very um, novel. And that was the, the air war in the Second World War, which in England, you know, you have these incredibly domestic setups of airmen during the day or when they're not flying in quarters at home with each other with other people on station and then flying off at night and it was that disjunction between the ordinary domesticity and then the terror and the horror and the being cast out into empty space and the loss of bodies and identities and and that kind of fascinated me so I thought oh I think I'll do that and I so totally did it <laughs> with a little bit of, you know, people pretending to pose as their brothers, women posing as their brothers and ending up flying Lancasters and all those other kinds of incredibly difficult things to pull the wool over a reader's eyes. So they don't notice that they're actually having something incredibly melodramatic put in front of them as serious literature. But <sighs> that's the satisfactions of the plot and character. You can do anything tell you so yes if you have a novel in you just let it out <laughs> next time i'm in a boring meeting i can start carving out some characters <laughs> oh don't say that Renska. now when you're making notes and you're part in a meeting there <laughs> suspicions will hover around you for all time and then our final question to you is, can you give us some advice to any listeners uh, about pursuing a research career with a focus in humanities? Because I think at least the universities I've been to, humanities seem to be always the first department to go. So I did my undergraduate at the University of Amsterdam. And a few years ago, they decided to just scrap the entire department. There were protests and it didn't happen. But it's a very casual, oh, let's just get rid of them then. You seem like a good example of there is a possibility. That's such a hard question, Renska. Well, I think possibly... The, the pandemic and pressures on universities, financial pressures on universities, it actually didn't, in Australia at least, transpire to be as terrible as everybody thought. And the environment where the humanities were getting shafted at the beginning, I think it's a very different environment now. And the complexities and the rapidity of change in everyday life is so blindingly obvious to everybody that I hope that university administrators will actually 
see that there is a point to the humanities that they may not have seen in the same way so close to their faces two years ago but it's unfortunately always gonna rest with the imperatives of how much money is there in the budget and what can go but if if you're starting out and particularly now there's more work here in Australia than there was because of people a great wave of retirements and people moving out of things so actually I think it's a little bit more hopeful as a landscape than it was don't know what do you think <laughs> that's what I have to say because it's always so you know, that one is it's like you could be asked that question as the person who's on the spot and is meant to be giving an expert answer but really we're all just one one cog in the great machine and it's very difficult to know because I am more from a social science background and Bath is our humanities champion but it's, it's discussions we have all the time is at least in um, medical anthropology or sociology, there's always the what's the point of your research? What's the purpose? And there seems to be more obvious purposes. But I think equally, there are purposes of like what you've been talking about today, novels or I don't know, Reddit or whatever. There are so many sources that could potentially be so interesting. So I think we need to have to know about all of it. But how do you convince the people with the money that your study is worth it? Well, I think anything where you're working with human experience to try to enlarge the possibilities of human experience can be justified. Surely, you would hope. But um, yeah, I, don't, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know. And of course, I left the institution and retired. So I was one of those people that got drawn into a thing with two other people where they said, one of you has to go. And of course, being the woman, I said, I'll go. <laughs> Self-sacrifice, hard-baked into everything. So I don't know that my standpoint is the right one for talking about survival in academia at this point. Oh, you seem to be doing pretty great for us. Oh, yeah, no, still doing the work, just not being paid for it. <laughs> well, that's the worst of it, isn't it? It's, it's a, it currently, it's um, September the 1st, dis December, wow, crikey, I had a difficult night with the baby. It's December the 1st in 2021, and there's a strike at UK institutions, not all of them, but lots of them, over casualisation and lack of pay and all, all sorts of things like that. I think you'll like our episode with Ruth Penfold Mounts, where she talks about the idea of glossy topics and how you're kind of looking to you have to kind of like you were just saying you have to articulate why things are of value or why they matter I think you do that really well articulate why these sorts of things are really important and in terms of like institutions more broadly what I find always fascinating is that often the humanities might have to justify itself a bit in interdisciplinary spaces where there might be lots more people who perhaps might be working with people at, rather than say text but in terms of the humanities itself, like there's just, it's something that students have wanted to study. And it, it does make a lot of money for universities in that respect. Yeah. You know, much so much so that they're looking at capping the numbers of, of, of students do, although that's a very complicated thing. People like, I do love the, the, the classic English literature rebuff of it's about everything. You'll have to do history, you'll have to do language, you'll have to do it all. And it, But it, it's true, isn't it? The great American liberal arts education was, was a fine thing. And over here, what they did was they raised the fees, uh, well, the deferred fees, because you know the government pays for it in the interim. They raised the cost of doing humanities, but 
it didn't discourage anybody from doing it. And they decreased the cost of education, technology and maths, but it didn't increase the numbers of enrollments of that. So it's like, oh, people will go where they want to go. So let's just hope that people will want to go where the mystery and the excitement is. The mystery and the excitement is definitely in death studies. Oh, it's been so lovely to talk to you, Sarah. Yeah, it's been lovely to talk to you too. And of course, to look into somebody else's daytime when there's night outside my window is always lovely. So thank you very much for the opportunity. It's great. I'm looking forward to listening to podcasts. Wow, what a just a wonderful person to listen to and talk to. It, it was a, a great pleasure. I love Sarah's language play. I love her way with words. I just love the idea of literature as the imagined underside of, of real life. And in terms of her positioning as an academic, I think I love how broad her interests are. And always see, seeing an example of someone who has an academic career that has so much breadth um, but is perhaps not is not secured within one specific discipline that is maybe like non-disciplinary, potentially anti-disciplinary. And she used this great phrase of working on the edges of disciplines. And I just think that's fabulous because I, I'm sure there are challenges in being in an academic career where you are rooted in a particular discipline and a strong community around that. And there could be lots of debates about methods and methodology and all sorts of things. But there are also challenges of having no clear kind of identity in a particular discipline I don't know if anyone out there knows the idea of the Enneagram if you don't I feel like being a non-disciplinarian is a bit like being a four on the Enneagram but look it up if you're into like tests about the self and things like that it's to do with a sense of never quite feeling at home anywhere you can never quite feel at home anywhere because you don't sort of quite fit in, in in any space and I find it just really inspiring to listen to people who have carved out a career that is both objectively and I think subjectively to Sarah you know successful and enjoyable without having the the sort of secure disciplinary identity I don't know how how you feel about that Ranska well I think more and more and maybe even particularly within deaf studies it's something that happens to people because we've heard Ruth talk about being a criminologist but leaning towards sociology and then you kind of have two different sets of literatures and ideas, sometimes working parallel, sometimes talking about the same topic, but not talking with each other. So I think it's great that people like Sarah are out there to build those bridges. And it's it's something I find with myself because like my undergraduate was in anthropology, but also f- we were always encouraged to read from other disciplines and other ideas. But then I find it hard when applying for jobs, for example, like which department do you apply for? Because I I also have like a breadth of research topics that I'm interested in, but do I just say, no, I'm the anthropologist, but also my degree also has the word sociology in it. So I can sometimes also say, no, I'm a sociologist because some people prefer that. I like it when people are a jack of all trades in a positive sense, but at the same time, it sometimes makes it hard for you to then justify to the outside world who you are and what ideas you stand for. Yeah, and I think maybe what you're saying there also suggests that probably a lot of people actually are not that. It's it's like a choice to align with a particular discipline in a particular context in whatever you're applying for, whatever you're doing. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe there's there's a kind of putting it on, taking it off sort of 
experience we have to have when it comes to these kind of things. She also talked, used the word creative scholarship, which I liked thinking about that. And obviously this is someone who's also bridging academia and creative work in making academic writing about literature, but also writing her own award-winning novels, which is awesome. And loud stories is one of my favourite things that she said. I love this phrase, loud stories, and the idea that some stories are like evacuated and hidden by other stories. And I think we both got chatting about that after the episode in relation to this idea of like, oh, you know, serial killers. It's great. <laughs> we need to avoid serial killers. Naturally, we do. But yeah, those loud stories about serial killers and what works and what doesn't. And I sort of say to joke to Renska, sometimes I'm surprised you're you're still alive, given the uh, mythical hotbed of serial killing that Scandinavian countries are. <laughs> um, and you, you shed some insight on that, didn't you? Yeah. So also to start off, I will point out, perhaps again, that officially Finland is not a Scandinavian country, but it's part of the Nordics. So I will continue to talk about the Nordic countries. These environments here lend itself very well to these kinds of narratives. I think especially the long winters, the long nights and like lack of daylight but also these especially in Finland so Finland is I feel 10 times the size of the Netherlands but only about five and a half million people and then the Netherlands is around 17 million people in a tiny country but I think there is because it's such a it's not a densely populated country so it lends itself for all these scenes of abandoned sheds or long roads and you'll see no one so I think it really lends itself well to, again, perhaps the thanatological imagination to these kinds of stories. And But at the same time, ironically, Scandinavia and the Nordics are one of the safest places to live. And it's not, I've, I've never felt as safe. I can also, because the daylight's, at the moment, uh, the sun doesn't really get down until like close to midnight, but I can go for a walk down the streets at that time and feel absolutely safe. So it's interesting how that imagination works with those stories, but then the reality of living here can feel so different. As a like geography, and like I, w- I was saying earlier as well, I think a lot of states in the US, again, because of their size, just lend itself so well to these narratives, but also in terms of realistic portrayal i like one of my favorite shows uh, of all time is the good wife and a lot of the judges or lawyers are from ethnic minorities or like a lot of african-american judges african-american lawyers and i know that is not based as much on like real life but i also feel in those kind of topics that is aspirational and nice to be able to relate like that is a job for me i think in like murder scenarios and serial killers i think it's often flipped the other way that the perpetrator is african-american or an ethnic minority so it's interesting how those stories and storytelling can work in so many different ways, which also just shows that someone like Sarah, who's working in the humanities with a lot of literature and like popular culture portrayal of certain topics, how important it is that people look at that critically. Absolutely. Yeah, I often think that with like law and order and stuff, where every judge will be like a, a global majority, like maybe like a black judge or something in the US. And I just think, you know, that's awesome. But there are challenges with that because is it giving the perception that it's true when it's it's not sufficiently true yet? But I loved what Sarah had to say and it was such a pleasure to talk to her with you. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about from Sarah's discussion? 
I think the last thing I've I write down as a comment is also in relation to to murderers and serial killers. Also, that serial killers are not as common as people think. I think we should reiterate that as often as we can. But also how often we need a backstory to someone who has killed someone and. For me, having done research in prison with people who have committed some crimes, when I was interviewing people in prison to understand how they got cancer, how they were diagnosed with cancer and how they were treated, I wasn't interested in knowing their backstory of how they got into prison. I was only interested in their illness story. But I find it interesting with a lot of these conversations about why someone killed someone is why do we need to hear that backstory is it because we want to understand like the mind of someone who kills do we have do we want to have empathy for that person or as you were saying um, before we started to record this it's mainly used as a warning sign like if this happens if you see this in your child or if this happens they might end up as a killer in later life so it's interesting to see what how are certain stories used to tell as is it a warning is it to show yeah, shitty things can happen to people and they might end up as a murderer. Like, how are stories used in wider society? What's the purpose of them? I think that is something I will increasingly think about when I read other stories. Like, what is their bigger purpose? Yeah, because especially documentary, there is a European interest, isn't there? It's like how someone's come to, come to be the way they are and what you might do about that. I think uh, I was reflecting after recording on like why I don't want to know what students have 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 done. I think there are some scenarios in which I would be informed if there was like a potential risk to me and stuff. But I think part of the reason is that I've got quite a strong imagination, like many people, and and I don't want to know because I prefer just not to think about it. Because especially since having children, I do have more complicated feelings about the idea of people who who've perpetrated particular types of crimes. I'm critical about those views that I have, but like not they're not views, they're feelings. I'm critical about those feelings and fears that I have. And I try sometimes to avoid watching those kind of documentaries and things since. Ha- There's certain things I won't watch or read since having kids at the moment, which I might when they're a bit older. But yeah, I've got a, I've got a couple of books on my shelf that have been sat there staring at me for a while. Some of them you've probably seen when you've come. <laughs> Child focused and I, I just think, Now's not the time to go down that route because I think people's anxiety is perhaps naturally a bit higher after having Mm. close aftermath of having had births and babies and pregnancies and things like that. Yeah, it's also just to pick up on that. I when I was doing a project on aging in a secure psychiatric hospital, it was more ethnographic. So I would spend time with people and interviewing them, but also observing and just going along on their days. So some people did tell me why they were there. And some people had killed quite often loved ones. But I I found it interesting for me. I've reflected a lot on that as well. It's like that it didn't change how I felt about them. Because I think the moment I met them, I just saw someone who was very vulnerable in a hospital situation. And But also I was interviewing someone who at that point in time was, again, quite well and on medication and receiving treatment and in most cases also feeling remorse and feeling regret. So there's, again, there's this whole backstory that will, and but I can imagine, or I can't really imagine because I don't have children, but how that will alter if there is people in your close surroundings who might be a victim, how that would totally flip all of that narrative on its head. 
I mean, I'm, I'm sure you could imagine it because you're very close with your nephews, you're close with my children. There's other ways to mother, aren't there? And I think that, yeah, what you're saying really fascinates me in terms of the idea of like humanising killers and how much do cultural stories, how much do loud stories do that? I, I think it's often more about the sort of forensic diagnosis of what went wrong than about humanising someone who's done something awful, partly because there is a really strong current focus on trying to focus on the victims rather than on the perpetrators because they've got so much attention already and that's probably what they wanted in the first place and they shouldn't get any more attention. And I also I found like speaking with the clinical psychologists about the people I was interviewing or like having debriefs with them, how it went. I felt we were always talking about different people. But I also think because I would I came in with a researcher angle. I'm not trying to fix you or trying to get you better. I just want to know your story in a different sense. I think you you also then see like the multiple layers of very complicated people. It's been lovely to talk to you on this uh, very hot July morning. Likewise, I always enjoy our little chats and I hope our listeners do too. So also, we to date have received some feedback uh, about the episodes, but if anyone wants to comment about our little discussions we have after the episode, I look forward to hearing people picking up on the points we make. So also let us know your thoughts and feelings about the topics we discuss in the intros and outros yeah we uh we would love to hear your ideas and, and what it makes you think about and anything we haven't thought of or that we've missed tell us tell us what we're we're missing so thank you all and see you all again next month thank you for listening to the deaf studies podcast you can find out more about our guests and their work in the show notes or on our website thedeafstudypodcast.com if you enjoyed listening to us please leave us a comment Follow us on social media at The Deaf Podcast and, of course, spread the word.